Hi, this is Gary Nelson. Welcome to Gaz's Corner. Today we're speaking with Chris Cataway, an expert in building successful teams. Chris's experience ranges from designing and project managing multi-million dollar telecommunication systems to leading disaster response teams in Africa and Asia. He's a PMP, a registered Prince II practitioner, and graduated as an Otago MBA in 2003. Recognizing that both hard and soft competencies are necessary for sustainable performance improvement, he's also licensed and accredited to facilitate workshops using world-class psychometric typing systems. Through his business, Global Achievements, Chris works throughout the Asia-Pacific region and internationally, envisioning and catalyzing transformational change through capacity building for individuals, teams and organizations, and program management. Chris recently presented at the PMI New Zealand Annual Conference in Wellington. Chris, welcome to Gaz's Corner. Hello, Gary. Glad to have you on. So, Chris, I really enjoyed your session in Wellington, um, but uh, I'd like to ask some questions. Yep. So, for our listeners, what is psychometric testing, and how can it help us in team building and working with other people? Well, psychometrics, I think, is a bit of a scary word, and I know a lot of people are put off it because they envisage themselves being uh, sat on a psychiatrist's couch and having probes stuck in their ears. Uh, it's nothing like that at all. Psychometrics is just the field of study that's concerned with theory and technique of psychological measurement. So that sort of measurement might include uh, knowledge, abilities, attitudes, personal traits, or educational achievement. And mostly uh, psychometric testing is done using some form of questionnaire or evaluator and then there's some sort of um, report or sometimes a graphical report of the results. It's not scary at all. It's really just finding out a bit more about you. Well, that's great. So in your session, you covered uh, a number of colors. So can you tell everyone about the color energies, red, yellow, green, and blue, and what do they mean? Well, I think these uh, color energies, they're just labels. Um, I know a lot of uh, psychometric instruments or psychometric systems use some fairly complicated words to describe different personality types or behaviours. The system that I presented in Wellington is a system called Clarity 4D. Now, Clarity 4D has been deliberately designed to be as simple as possible. And so we just use colours, red, yellow, green and blue, as just labels so that it's convenient to talk about different types of behaviours and preferences. Now, the background to all this came from the ancient Greeks, and they had the concept of the four elements, water, earth, fire, and air. And they associated different characteristics or attributes or behaviours with those different elements. So it goes back a long way. Much more recently, um, a fellow called um, Carl Gustav Jung, who was a doctor and a psychologist in Switzerland at the beginning of the last century, developed that, and he identified what he called attitudinal preferences. And he noted that different behaviours or different styles could be, to some extent, um, clustered together. And the different um, attitudinal preferences that he talked about were introversion and extroversion. So the way that you uh, respond to the outside world. Okay. He also talked about uh, thinking and feeling. So whether or not you're task oriented or you're more people oriented. He also talked about intuition and sensing. So intuition is probably not supposed to say this 
for, well, the purist wouldn't like it, but gut feel, whereas sensing is much more about those five senses. You need to touch or taste or see or smell the facts and figures in order to get your information to make decisions. So that's how we came about it. Now, the um, different colours that Clarity 4D uses is red. Now, people who have a preference for what we call red energy are people who are highly energetic and action-oriented. They're positive, straight-talking and assertive. They tend to be more goal-focused and enjoy the challenge of achieving quick results. They're pragmatic thinkers. They have an objective approach which can sometimes overlook the needs of other people. So you might recognize people who have a preference for that red energy. Sort of bull in the the china shop. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to say that because I think there's a time and a place for all these different behaviors and styles. But, uh, yeah, sometimes. And it's all about using these energies appropriately. So then there are people who have this preference for the energy, yellow energy. Now, yellow energy is characterized by people who are outgoing, sociable and fun-loving. They like the company of other like-minded people. And they often stand out in the crowd. And they often enjoy being the centre of attention. So they they can be persuasive, charming, but sometimes they can overwhelm people with their enthusiastic energy. So, again, I'm sure that you recognise some people who have those sorts of preferences and behaviours. So then we have the people who um, have a preference for green energy. Now, people who have uh, dominant green energy tend to be warm and friendly, but in an understated way. They value close relationships. And they're loyal and supportive of their family and friends and colleagues. They like to create a harmonious atmosphere and they prefer consensus to confrontation, which sometimes can make them appear, particularly to those people who have a preference for red energy, to be indecisive and laid back. And then last but not least, those people who have a preference for blue energy. They tend to be introspective and often reserved. They like to observe others and think before taking action. Now, that might be in contrast to those people with a preference for yellow energy who might actually think by talking. So the people who have a preference for blue energy are going to think first and then, you know, probably come up with a very considered and concise answer. They're happy in their own company and they can give an independent and detached analysis which is often very, very helpful. I mean, these are the people that are great at those budgets and spreadsheets and that detailed analysis that we all know is so important. But sometimes, because they're looking at that detail in a fairly detached way, it can give the impression of aloofness. So perhaps you recognize those four different types. Okay. So you you mentioned that there are dominant colors. Um, So are people kind of born with a dominant color, or can they change their dominant colors as they as they age and mature and experience? Well, I think there's always that age-old argument about is it nature or nurture, and I'm sure there's a certain amount of both involved. Um, People tend to have a a preference throughout their life, but that's not to say that that preference can't change under different circumstances. So um, we we call it um, type mobility, and under different circumstances under different stages of life under different pressures under different uh for example if you're involved in a relationship or a relationship breaks up or you've got uh, specific um jobs to do at work you may actually turn up the volume of one of those colors and it may be that that then just tips you over so you've got a different dominant color under those circumstances but usually you'll return back to your home base so 
the key here is that um, unlike some practitioners who do tend to use these colors to categorize people, we don't want to do that. That's not really fair at all, because all of us have all of these color energies within us and we can choose which ones to use. But just as with any other type of um, activity, we can get better at doing certain things. So whilst it may not be comfortable to exhibit some of these behaviours now, it doesn't mean that with practice you can't get better. And really the key to successful um, relationships is to be able to identify what is the appropriate style or colour energy to use under certain circumstances and then have the flexibility to use that. So the short answer is yes, you can actually change your dominant colour, but you're more likely to return to the home base. Okay, so when I was younger, I was very introverted and probably still have a preference for that. But I, I personally worked a lot for putting myself out in, in, in front of people and just terrified of talking. And and, that, and now I'm very comfortable with it. So that's basically what you're talking about. People can can sort of stretch themselves and, and become more comfortable in different areas. Absolutely. I mean, I started off my career in engineering where I had to do a lot of the maths. I wasn't really very good at that. A lot of the analysis and the very detailed work. Um, I, I can do that. Uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it for short periods of time. But after a little while, I may get a bit distracted. I may lose interest and I find it hard to be motivated when I haven't got that energy of other people working around me. And so, um, you know, I think overall I tend to be more extroverted or I'm more comfortable being extroverted. But, yeah, sure, I can go and be that introverted, detailed and analytical uh, person when I need to be. And I think often it's that flexibility to be able to adapt your style that um, is a key to a lot of people's success. Okay. So are there any uh, sort of incompatible color matches or mismatches? I think we have to be careful about saying there's incompatible, but I suspect that if already your listeners have identified what their dominant color energy might be, if they think back throughout their their career or, or various incidents in life, they'll probably find that the people that they felt most uncomfortable around were people whose preference was opposite to their own. So red and green are opposites, blue and yellow are opposites. Now, it's not to say that they're incompatible. I think that's crazy because in actual fact, when we think about it, we need all those styles and all those behaviours, particularly when we're working in a team, to accomplish a role or accomplish a job properly. So they're, they're actually very compatible. They're probably more complementary than compatible. We need all those different behaviours. But in terms of the people that we might find it most difficult to get on with or to see their point of view, they tend to be the people who have got an opposite dominant preference colour to our own. Okay, well, that makes sense. So say you had previously had psychometric testing for your own behavioral preferences and strengths, but it's not in the budget for you to do it for the entire team. As someone who's had that uh, kind of profiling or, or is a very astute observer, are there any key observations that you can use to help you work with the rest of the team, uh, even though you, you know you don't formally know their, their preference for color? I think we actually... Uh, our subconscious knows far more than we as conscious thinkers tend to um, tend to accept. Uh, if you look at young children, you know, if they want something from mum, they behave in a certain way. If they want something from dad, they behave in a different way. And uh, I think that's the key to it is being able to identify the preferences of the person that you want to communicate with and then adapting your own style to his or her preferences. Um, 
I mean, it's just not feasible unless somebody has got a similar level of self-awareness to your own to be able to say, okay, I want you to behave in a particular way because that's the way I like it. I mean, that's quite arrogant and it's really impractical <laughs> in most circumstances. Oh, yeah. What you can do Absolutely. is you, you can identify, you've got a fair idea of, just watch the body language, watch the facial expressions. If you say things in a particular way, you can see whether that's pleasing or whether that's a bit uncomfortable for the person you're communicating with. So don't use the, the phrases, don't use the tone of voice, don't use those examples that don't switch on the person you're communicating with. So I think that's key to it. It's all about self-awareness and being able to make the change yourself and actually having the humility to recognize that you are going to improve communications by changing your own behavior, not expecting everybody else to change theirs because you like things a certain way. Um, I think there's also a danger though of trying to um, be too clever about this unless you've you've had the training or unless you've thought about it a lot um, I know that there are critics of this sort of um, technique because they say well it's condemning people to work within their own comfort zones which I think under some circumstances is very true um, but the thing is that we can all adapt we can all change the way that we behave and actually, as I said before, the key to success is often recognizing the correct style, which we often call style effectiveness. So, Chris, one of, one of the key points, I guess, that you've made there is that um, the only people that you can actually change are yourself. I mean, you can have preferences in how people might be able to deal with you, but the only way that you can really sort of you know, make your way in this world is to be able to adapt um, and, uh, and, and, and learn how to work with other people. And I think uh, as, a, as a project manager or as a leader, um, you can pass on that same insight to other people. I mean, one of the most rewarding things I find doing this sort of work is working particularly with uh, younger teams or, or younger managers who are just taking their first footsteps into management. Um, and just the light bulbs come on when you explain that actually it's okay to be who you are. And I think that's something we don't really feel comfortable with often until, you know, fairly, uh, I'm not going to say late in our career, but not right at the beginning of our career. And then as we become more confident with management, we realize actually, hey, you know, I am who I am and that's great. Other people are who they are and I need that diversity. This is the key. Um, but by sharing this insight with those, uh, your other team members, um, you can all make the adaptation to be able to connect better with each other it's very dynamic it's very complex of course you can't behave in the same way to every person and if you're in a room full of people you're going to have to be adapting your behaviors to every individual in the room because we are all unique there are not just four types of people given right. these cup labels so it is much more complex but again as you have more self-awareness and as you develop your own skills at this you become better at it and it becomes less uh less conscious. You can do it more unconsciously, and that's when it really becomes powerful. Okay. So you've done training and, and sessions you know, all around the Asia-Pacific region, so you'd be uh, quite uh, used to dealing with you know, people with a variety of different cultural backgrounds and preferences. Uh, are there any particular recommendations for you know, sort of cross-country, cross-cultural um, communications and working with teams? Well, I, I've done a lot of work both as a project manager in telecommunications projects and leading um, emergency response or disaster response projects for some of the big uh, international charities. 
And so under those circumstances, we bring people together very, very quickly from lots of different cultures and backgrounds, educational backgrounds. And the thing that I have found all along is that I think often culture is used as a smokescreen rather than as than because it's a real issue. At the end of the day, I think as human beings, we, we all have similar drivers. We all have similar motivators. The thing is that if we can behave in a way that recognizes and respects that we're all different, then I think that we can all get on. Um, and I, I haven't found any differences in terms of different people's backgrounds or, or nationalities when it comes down to these basic behaviors that we're describing by these four colors. Now, sure, there are going to be certain expectations that have come about as a result of the way that people have been uh, educated or the, the culture of their organization. And they may feel that they need to, to fit into a certain um, way of working to be able to be part of that, that organization. But actually, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to basic human behaviors. And if we recognize and respect those basic human behaviors, then we can all get on. And after all, a culture, in my view, is something that's negotiated amongst the people that are working together at the time. There are going to be certain influences depending on your nationality or your educational background or, or whatever. But actually within a team, you have to negotiate and agree your own culture. And that's where something like Clarity 4D can be very, very valuable because it gives us a language and it gives us a framework to have those difficult discussions. And those discussions relate to what are the acceptable ways of interacting with each other? What are the acceptable ways of working? And how do you actually tell somebody when they're behaving in a way that you don't find acceptable? Now, these, um, these labels that we have and the behaviors and the styles that they reflect uh, can be discussed in a very objective way. It's very easy, for example, to say to somebody, you're being a bit red today or you're being a bit green today. That is not anything about them as a person. It's the behaviours that they're exhibiting. And so it becomes something that don't have to get defensive over. And just a very simple sentence like that can actually clear the air and it can make you laugh. And people then recognise, OK, I understand that I'm being a bit too strong in that preferred behaviour. Let me adapt a little bit so that it's more acceptable to the group. Okay. Now, in, in your presentation, you had an example of a fairly unbalanced team uh, in certain industries. Certainly, um, there may be a prevalence of a particular, you know, uh, type of color behavioral preference, um, you know, maybe it's marketing or, or technical. Um, can you give sort of a couple examples, one of, you know, an unbalanced team that you've that you've sort of encountered or worked with and one that, uh, you know, has been, you know, fairly fairly balanced in terms of distribution of the types of people and the types of preferences? Yeah, I, I gave an example. I worked with a, a team um, in the UK that worked for uh, a council, and um, the role of this team was actually to um, report on other departments' statistics within that council. And um, the council was moving from a cost centre basis to a profit centre basis. And this team realized that they were now going to have to go out and sell their services to other council departments. And those other council departments had now been given the option to um, outsource that work if they chose. And that team, and it's so typical that often managers will recruit in their own likeness. And the 
the sort of work that they were doing was very detailed and very analytical. So you might expect that the um, majority of the team members had a preference for, for blue or, or even for green energy. Um, now, they were quite daunted by the idea of having to go out and establish new relationships and actually sell the services that they were doing. There was one guy on this team who had a strong preference for yellow energy, and he always felt he was the odd one out in the team. And the others always couldn't quite understand him. They couldn't understand why he was so bouncy and uh, why he was so gregarious. Um, but suddenly, within that workshop, we recognised that this guy now had a pivotal role because he understood the detailed analysis that the others did day in, day out. But equally, he enjoyed going out meeting new people. He enjoyed um, establishing new relationships and communicating what these other people did. And so within that, um, that day's workshop, we had uh, re-established the roles within the teams. And suddenly, this guy, who had always been considered a bit of an outsider, was suddenly very, very highly valued and was now very motivated because the role that he foresaw uh, within this new profit centre structure was exactly the sort of work he really enjoyed doing. So that would be a good example. Um, I think some of the other examples that I could give um, are where there's been a bit of friction within a team or the team is undertaking a new activity. I, I worked for a major pharmaceutical firm. I ran a couple of workshops for them. I went to Switzerland and then I went to San Francisco where they were holding some team meetings. Uh, they were just about to introduce a new product to the market. So there was a huge amount of work. Um, the team leader um, had a strong preference for that red energy, um, but he recognized that that wasn't the only way of doing things. And within his team, he actually had quite a good um, this, uh a good variation of, of preferred energies. And so he wanted to get the team together so that they could, and it was a new team, they just formed, so that they could begin to learn about each other um, in a way that would be constructive for quickly forming this new team and establishing uh, a culture and ways of working. And so, you know, there's good distribution of colours within the team. And just by working with them over the course of a few hours, we were able to identify and to value the different skills and attributes that each of those members brought to the team and then work out how they were going to run their meetings, for example, how they were going to communicate with each other to maximise the benefits of that diversity rather than that diversity actually being something which, which kept them apart. Okay, that's great. So uh, so this kind of process of going through and, and did, did they do an actual kind of uh, personality profiling in, in that scenario? Because it seems to be a, that it could be a very uh, good way to kind of uh, shortcut these forming, storming, norming kind of process. Yeah, absolutely. That Brian Tuckman model, I think, uh, you know, it, it's great as a model, but then you need to understand how to implement it. And one of the things that we... Um, we can do is to quickly help each other recognize where their preferences are and what their strengths are. So for that, we have an online evaluator. It takes about 20 minutes to complete um, and it will identify from your answers, from your own answers. There's no other information available to the computer. Um, it, it, it gives you a bit of background about the system itself. And then it has a a, some text, a narrative, about 50 sentences, which give you an overview of how you see yourself. It shows you what your colour energy preferences are, or what you've told the computer that, that 
how you see yourself. And then it, along with the strengths that each of those color energies have, there may also be some blind spots. And so the, the things that you see as strength, somebody with an opposite color preference may not see in quite the same way. And so it gives you some awareness of how people with other color preferences may view some of your behaviors, particularly if you're stressed and you're perhaps not thinking as carefully in terms of how you phrase things or, or if they're stressed and they're tired and, and they may interpret something in a way that you don't like. And so the, the profile um, shows you how you see yourself and how others may see you. But equally, it shows you areas where you could develop. And by learning to become more comfortable at using some of these other behaviours that are normally exhibited by people who have got different preferences to your own, you can become more flexible and you can adapt, if you like, with a wider variety of situations and other people's preferences. So the profile is incredibly valuable. It does shortcut that, that process of learning about yourself and learning about other people because you can share that profile around. And so it has... Um, some nice, simple to understand descriptions about the sorts of preferences and the sorts of behaviours. And then we can go on to working within a team. And so if you can imagine that uh, we plot graphically each of the preferences of a team member, we can see in one glance uh, where the likely strengths of the team are and where the areas are that they may need to think about a bit more to be able to cover all those bases. So that graphical team map is incredibly helpful. And then lastly, I suppose, is that in terms of um, the, the strategies for becoming more rounded, for being able to address all those bases, we do what we call a relationship map. And so we think of different key stakeholders, or they could be different team members. And then we get each of the individuals to think about how they might adapt their behaviours to connect better with somebody else's preferences. And so that whole process can take uh, typically about a day, um, get the whole team together. And the way that I like to teach these things, I don't really think you are teaching, it's helping people to learn much more than teaching. But we do it in an environment of fun. We do it in a way where nobody really has an opportunity to get upset. Um, we have a lot of laughter, we have a lot of fun, we have a lot of interactive exercises. And I think people tend to learn much better if they're enjoying themselves. And I'm sure the neuroscientists will have some good explanations why. Um, so it's a fairly uh, painless process. In fact, most people thoroughly enjoy it. And it's interesting that I've often found that the people who are sitting looking really grumpy and their arms folded at the beginning of the day because they don't really want to be there or their boss has told them to go there are often the ones that come up afterwards and say that they've really enjoyed it and gained a huge amount out of the day. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very successful system. Uh, it's a very the, the teams who who do the the group the group work as a team um, talk the language immediately. They leave the room talking the language, and that language persists for many many months and years. In fact, um, I often visit the first group that I ever did this with, and they're still talking the same language about six years later. So, Chris, um, so it, it sounds like if you're doing kind of a, a team development workshop that it, it makes sense to kind of do all the assessment and everything else together in, in the room together as a, as a team versus, you know, doing it offline and coming in and saying, well, I'm blue, I'm green, I'm yellow, I'm red. And it seems to have more benefit uh, potentially if, if you do it all collaboratively, you know, doing your own, not, not 
speaking over each other's shoulders, but but doing your own bit and then and then getting together and talking about it. I think there's a huge um, benefit to discovering the problem together, if you like. That, um, people say that if you tell somebody the solution, which is, I guess, the the way that you might approach it if you, you have individual sessions, uh, if you tell somebody the solution, they don't really learn. If Even if you tell somebody what the problem is, they don't learn it. They have to discover the problem together. And we um, do exercises which help the team to discover the problem together. Once you have a, a shared understanding of what the problem is, then you can build up to like, identifying and uh, specifying, if you like, the, the problem and then providing a solution to it. So I think there is a huge benefit to doing it as a team. And the way that I usually introduce the profiles is after we've, we've played a few games and we've had a bit of fun and we've discovered those problems together, um, then I give people the results of the questionnaire that they have done online before the workshop. And that's the point where we begin to, if you like, get more serious and we begin to actually look at individual behaviours. But because we've already discovered the problem together, uh, there's not really any room for anybody to get defensive or, or feel um, uncomfortable with sharing that information because by now we've established that all of those behaviours, all of those styles, all those colour energies are equally valuable and that the team needs all of them. So by now the whole group has bought into the idea that we've got to find a way to make sure that we maximise the contributions of every individual within the team. Okay, so it, it certainly makes more sense to to do that at the beginning of the project or during the during the kickoff, or when you're when you're forming a new team. Are there are there many times where um, you've been asked to come in, you know, for an established team that that you know, other than the council one, where um, you know they're just trying to improve things or or they've you know got difficulties that they want you to come help work through. It can be, the process is very valuable at any time. Um, I think I have been asked to come in on several occasions. For example, uh, when a team is sitting down to go through a couple of days of strategic planning meetings. And that's a, a, a good time, an established team. They know each other quite well on one level. But by giving this new framework and the new language, it just creates um, an environment for the work that they're about to do together which is based on a, a common foundation. So that's a, a fairly typical way of doing things. I have worked with teams that have um, got, if you like, personality clashes. Um, I think that, that it can be helpful then. It can provide a language for people to have those difficult discussions. It can um, introduce some of the reasons for the conflicts in a very uh, non-accusatory way. So it's not about the individuals, it's not about their own values, their own beliefs, it's about the behaviours that they are exhibiting which, you know, are causing that friction. So it can be quite useful then. Um, what I, I found actually is, I can remember one occasion where I brought in because there were some personality clashes within a team. Um, the people who were seen as the difficult people within the team were the people that sat there with their arms folded uh, at the beginning, looking very, very grumpy. And this is one occasion where they didn't come up to me at the end of the session saying how great it was. They still sat there with their arms folded and not really wanting to be there. Um, and I think the outcome of that session, which was a very successful outcome, was that the others in the team really um, felt that they got on great and they were able to, to work together. There were these two outsiders who left the organisation within a few weeks afterwards and realised that, you know, it's their attitude that was the problem rather than the rest of the team. So I think that one of the values of this system 
and this approach is that it gives each individual that awareness that they are as much part of the problem as everybody else and they are as much part of the solution as everyone else. And it's all about adapting your own behaviours to help ease the situation rather than expecting everybody else around you to change. Okay. Well, that's that's been very informative, Chris. Uh, do you have any final recommendations for project managers or others who are starting to build uh, teams or are working with teams? Well, I mean, I've worked in lots of different types of project, from the commercial through to these um, massive disaster responses in some uh, fairly extreme circumstances. And overall, I think over the years, I've realized that the methodologies and the systems are essential, but they're not sufficient. And I think our tendency is when we're setting up a new team, particularly in project management, to set up methodologies and the systems and the filing systems and the roles and the responsibilities and all this stuff. But actually, at the end of the day, that isn't going to work unless you've got people interacting with each other. And I think because it's often seen as little less tangible, we tend to ignore the so-called soft skills. In my uh, own experience of leading teams under some quite extreme circumstances, I found that if you can get the relationships and the communications uh, going well within your team and with your team, then the rest kind of follows because people are on side, they're able to work together, they're able to collaborate well. So my advice, I suspect, would be don't neglect the soft skills. Don't neglect the people side of things. Um, In my experience, they're a much more important influence on project outcomes than the processes, methodologies and systems are. Uh, I would also caution to some degree against uh, trying to do it all yourself. Uh, obviously, I'm not I'm not just touting for business, but I have seen examples where people who perhaps haven't yet developed that degree of insight that somebody who has been trained and has been thinking about this for some years has. Um, they've tried to take some shortcuts and do it cheaply themselves. I think there is a danger that if it isn't done the right way, um, it it can cause problems. I've seen that particularly actually um, where people have used psychometrics for recruiting and selection, and they tend to use it as a pass-fail criteria. Um, I think there's a danger to that because whilst it's true that different preferences are going to predispose you more comfortably to doing certain types of roles, it's not to say that you haven't got the flexibility to adapt your style to a different situation. And perhaps what we should be looking for is the capacity within an individual to recognize a style that's appropriate for a situation and then to adapt to that style rather than saying, are they a good fit for the job now or not? Um, so there is that danger of condemning people to working within their own existing comfort zones. So I just would have some caution about trying to um, try, trying to do too much yourself until you're confident that you've actually really got the nuances of, of these systems. Now, the uh, way that Clarity 4D has been designed is specifically that what we would like to do is to be able to impart the skills to facilitate the workshops and to facilitate the systems within individuals and within organisations. We don't really want uh, always for consultants such as myself to have to fly in and do that work because we recognise that adds to the cost. And it means that you don't get the continuity. So what we'd prefer to do is to work with uh, teams and then in a kind of trainer trainers type role to impart the skills and accredit people within organizations to be able to run these workshops themselves. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That's uh, been a very, very informative session. So before before we let you go, for people that are interested in, in learning more about Clarity 4D or and the color red, green, yellow, and blue color model of, of behavioral preferences, how can people get a hold of you or your company? Well, I've called my company Global Achievements Learning Development and Consultancy, G-A-L-D-A-C. And so my website is www.galdac.com, G-A-L-D-A-C.com. So please find me there. There's uh, plenty of information on the website, and there's a contact us page there. So please send me an email, and I'd love to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Chris, and I uh, look forward to, uh, to meeting you again in the future. So thanks to all the listeners. This has been Gary Nelson and Chris Cattaway on Gaz's Corner podcast. And if you'd like to read any articles on Gaz's Corner, they're available at www.gazzascorner.com. Thank you, and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon.